HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. Whole Foods Market creates win-win partnerships with our suppliers, and we love to tell their stories. New New Chocolates in Brooklyn offers delicious and classic combination truffles and caramels, sweet, salty, some even with beer. Using single-origin cocoa beans, production takes place right in their shop on Atlantic Avenue. Come have a taste in one of our six Manhattan locations. Miss Broiler, Miss Fryer, Miss Roaster, Miss Capernet, Miss Stewart, and old Madam Hen. But we're spotlighting Miss Roaster of the Year, measuring in at 14, 15, 14. We're roasting Miss Chicken today on the French Chef. <laughs> Ah, who else but Julia Child? Oh, just, I mean, you hear her voice and you have to smile. You have to laugh. And you are listening to A Taste of the Past. And I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And culinary history, indeed it is, because it's the 50th anniversary of the first publication of Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And actually, not long afterward, um, came Julia Child's first television show, The French Chef. Uh, Julia Child was, she was absolutely amazing. She defined and popularized the genre of TV cooking shows. And I have, I'm very fortunate today to have with me as my guest, Dana Polin. Dana is a professor of cinema studies at NYU, and he's the author of a new book called Julia Child's The French Chef, where he actually explores the unprecedented success of Julia Child's cooking show. And he also explores how and why it had such an impact, I think we might say groundbreaking impact, on American culture, television, and last but not least, cooking. 
Welcome, Dana. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, let's fast forward a little bit because we, I just mentioned how it's the 50th anniversary of the publication of her book and that, you know, the book that has made movie fame and, and, um, and everyone of a certain generation learned to cook from. But here's a woman who didn't own a television, didn't know TV at all, and yet she mastered TV just like she mastered the art of French cooking. How did this happen? How did she first appear on television so quickly after the publication of this book? It's an interesting story. Um, Julia Child had moved with her husband to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I, part of why I think she went to Cambridge... Oh, back, back from France. Um, they had had other... Um, they had had other situations between then. They had been in um, Scandinavia at one point, in Germany at one point. Uh, Paul, who had been in the State Department, fi- uh, finally after all the problems of the McCarthy era, I think they just decided to pack it in, not struggle with government anymore. And, re- and he was at retirement age. They were looking for a place to retire. So they picked Cambridge, not for the university so much as Cambridge, Massachusetts was also a kind of high cultural center, symphony, WGBH, which was an educational channel, uh, all the new currents in the arts, post-war mm-hmm. arts, and they went there. The I Brahms think, Society. Yes. <laughs> they went there to participate, I think, in the high culture of the moment and never dreamed of TV being of interest to them. One thing that had happened during the McCarthy period, though, is that one of the things that was McCarthy's downfall was appearing on TV, and everybody saw directly what a thug he was. And right. Julia hadn't been in the States at that time, but had heard about it, so knew about the power of TV. So when she and her co-authors wrote Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and especially when it started to really take off, they anticipated that they might be invited to do various TV shows. And in fact, Child and one of her co-authors, Simca Beck, they were Mm -hmm. invited on the Today Show. And it's a famous story. They went to the Today Show, having been assured that they could cook on the show. They got there and the equipment was pitiful. They were going to make omelets and the it was just two little burners that wouldn't come up to the proper heat. And then at the very last minute, it worked. But there was this kind of fumbling around until the very last minute. And so she learned early on the frustration of television. <laughs> she learned the frustration. She also cooking learned, on TV. <laughs> and she also learned that she had to be very carefully, um, very careful in planning everything, doing a lot of prep, a lot of rehearsal, as spontaneous as she seems on air. And I think she is. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pre-prep behind it. And... You know, part of what was great about her on TV was how natural, how spontaneous she, she comes off. I talked to her first director, Russell Morash, who was the director for the French Chef episodes right. through the 60s. And he said, there were a lot of reasons why we didn't edit. One was because it, it was shot live, even though it didn't air live. It was shot live. Kind of like this radio yes. show. <laughs> yes. One of the reasons they didn't edit, I mean, there were lots. One is when you're cooking, it's hard to say, stop the boiling, let, you know, take, the, take the ingredients out of the soup. Right. But another was, he said, if you interrupted her, she would lose her momentum. Mm. She needed to be turned on for a half hour, let loose. She would do her thing. And if you stopped that, she, she, she wouldn't have had the same sense of energy. Well, so let's, let's talk about that famous story. When, okay, so the, the Today Show was all right. It went okay. Didn't garner any uh, high ratings and, right. and fan mail. However, she was invited on to a public radio show. She was invited locally in Cambridge to the WGBH station they had a show called i've been reading which was again very high art very literary and i think the story this part of the story may be apocryphal but evidently that's okay we love stories one of the wives of one of the producers said 
we have to open up beyond the, the stuffy men. Mm-hmm. Let's bring someone about cooking. And they said, let's bring Julia Child. And here she came into the studio with her own uh, hot pan, you know, with her own hot plate. She wasn't going to trust anybody. She wasn't right? going to trust anybody. It had all been planned out. She does the omelet. It's a success. And omelets were one of her, I mean, it's a French basic. It's one of the first things she did when she actually had the French chef TV show. So she, she's working in a kind of safe territory. So she does an omelet. Evidently, within a day or two, 20, depending upon who you read, 23, 26 fan letters come in to WGBH. And for WGBH, that's a lot of fan mail. Hmm. And they say, maybe we should develop this more. So they ask her to think about developing a program. She does three pilots for them. She writes up a very interesting memo about what she would like in the show, which includes in the original plan to have her not appear alone, but to always have guests, sh- right, right. which is interesting. A hosted series. Uh-huh. She's, she's much better in this period at just being alone. Later on, she'll do hosted shows. And as Laura Shapiro notes in her biography, mm-hmm. although they're good, there's a kind of way in which Julia's child, especially in the 70s, starts to become more self-effacing in the, in the shows where she has guests. And it's almost as if she's watching others do their thing. She wants them to take the lead yeah. rather than her always And leading, she's right. great at taking the lead. Part of the problem for with Child is that she's very modest about herself on TV. The first time she sees one of the WGBH pilots, she sort of shrieks at how ghastly she thinks she looks. <laughs> and she's always wary, even though the comedy is what a lot of people remember, she's very wary of the comedy not being meaning that her food is not being taken seriously. seriously. right. She doesn't want to come off as a buffoon or an idiot. Right. The cooking is serious, but the whole attitude surrounding it is a little more laissez-faire. Yes, right? yeah. yeah. And yeah. including literally surrounding it, because she'll often have a, and we just heard that with the Chicken Sisters, she'll have a lead-in that's very comic and a finale that's very comic with a very serious center yeah. between Now, those. a lot of that comedy didn't really develop until... The series got going a bit. I mean, she was, you know, obviously as anyone, she gets, she was a little, not staid, but um, more serious. Yeah, and she's she, kind of know, a Boston Brahmin, even though right. she's not from Boston originally. Right. She has that kind of imperious side to her. Right. And bit by bit, they develop the comedy, especially in the, in the 70s episodes of The French Chef, which are the color episodes. They'll often start with a very comic opening, and she starts having punning titles, Waiting for Gigo. Yes, yes. Um, eggs, something about eggs, which is a funny title. I forget what it was. Something, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Remember, what, but, yeah. she, but they were all, she always had something humorous that she would bring in. But now, she was not the first cooking show on television. We kind of, so now we'll, we'll wind back a little bit. See, this is old days, too, a rewind. Right. We don't even have to rewind these days. I mean, these are all days before digital production before video even i mean it was tape it was you know live to tape and so the editing process was tough and And in some cases wasn't even live to tape in the very early days it was just live and it was gone yes right and And it was gone the kinescope which is the machine that could tape off the air wasn't invented till 46 47 i believe so all shows before 47 have disappeared Mm -hmm. one of the earliest records we have of a cooking show is James Beard did a cooking show in 46, 47. Now you wrote a book on, you, you uh, wrote an essay. An essay. You wrote a paper yes. on James Beard, right? And all we have of those shows are the audio because there was a, the engineer at NBC recorded the audio, which was easy to do. So at the Library of Congress, there's the audio for two of James Beard's mm-hmm. TV shows, but no, no images to go along with right. that. So some of the earlier shows, um, I'm trying to date when the very first cooking show came on. I don't know. Was it James Beard or was it? It's even before. I mean, it's, it's one of the problems for anyone who's trying to do the history of the cooking show and more generally the history of TV is in part because there wasn't 
a visual record, mm-hmm. but also because it was cooking, no one thought to save Wasn't, this material. It was like, not considered important. Right. right? It, it's so. often daytime. It's often considered women's fair. Mm-hmm. It's um, in a period where no one knows where TV is going to go. So they just they don't save records. Um, we do have some pictures, and there's a book from 1945 about wartime television up in Schenectady, and the Schenectady station had some cooking shows. That's what I was going to say. A lot of the a lot of the early cooking shows um, and the little bit of research that I've done seem to be local television stations doing lo- you know local talent, local people, and it was filler kind of. Yeah, you know. there's very as I said, much of it's daytime. Much of the daytime programming in general is local. And one of the things that was interesting for me is in doing the research on the book, I had to counter a number of cliches. One cliche was that she had the first cooking show, which isn't true. Another is that she took advantage of the PBS network to develop her show. And what I'd say in the book, not took advantage in the bad sense, but used the fact of PBS. One of the things I talk about in the book is PBS doesn't exist when The French Chef is airing. There are local educational uh, Mm -hmm. stations and it's the success of her show that leads, well, her, the success of her show, plus other things that lead educationalists to think we should have a national network of educational television. Yeah. And so, for example, so in 1966, the Carnegie Commission is um, asked by President Johnson to investigate the possibility of public television. They prepare a report, and in their report they say the one, the, the only show they cite currently on that they say is a good example of what we'd like, it, they, they cite The French Chef. And it's not because there's, there's not other shows they respect, but that's the one that stands out for them. Yeah. And it's that show that becomes kind of the inspiration for the public broadcasting system. Yeah, excellent. And an and excellent show indeed, because it's, it's still being rerun and on, on public television, and on the cooking channel. Uh, the so there was history of of cooking shows on. We were talking earlier before the show about Dione Lucas. Now she was really um, after James Beard, around the same time as James Beard worked with James Beard. Right. But she presented a lot of French cooking techniques as well. The problem is she just didn't have a personality. Right. Yeah. Going jumping back for just one second to yeah. the shows in the forties and fifties. So we said that a lot of them are local, and until with the exception of Beard, and until Lucas. Most of them are by, and I don't want to fall into a cliche, but most of them are by Midwest sort of housewifey women who are teaching domestic science. Mm-hmm. So it's cooking, not in the sense of exotic or daring or adventurous, but you need to get this stuff out on the table for your family. I'm going to teach you how to do what you should already be knowing how to do. It's kind of post-war, how to be a good housewife, right. economizing Yeah, and it's, some yeah. of it's a response to new post-war conditions. Women have married earlier. They're moving far away from their mothers. So they don't have the same background anymore, and, and often they were sponsored by, um, let's say, the gas company to, you know, right. for a new gas range or electric company or or even or something kitchen like that. products. So kitchen it products, might be a, right. a, you know, a, a company that makes flour or mm-hmm. a company that makes a particular um, spice or something. So it's often local. Now, what I think with De, with Deoni Lucas, there's an attempt to uplift and to make a cuisine that's more than just average, ordinary, common day fare. She is trying to bring French cooking to American television. That's right. Uh, and she, that's also what she had done in cookbooks and a whole line of kitchenware. She does not, does not take to TV well. No, she was elevating the art, but not the genre of television. Right. Yeah, and part of it is that <laughs> she, I think, goes for what she thinks proper cooking on TV should be, which is respectable, dignified. And she comes off as that kind of stiff, upper lip British 
She's very matronly. She's very serious. She'll crack jokes on the show, but they fall flat because she's so serious. Her show, I think, also suffers. And there, I should say there's very few surviving examples of her mm-hmm. show. Her show also suffers for something that Julia Child's Julia, for something that Julia Child was able to avoid, which is Dione Lucas as James Beard before her were on commercial channels, and their shows had sponsors and sponsors who insisted on having their product product placement uh, yeah. product placement you know, front and forward. So in James Beard's case, there's these sketches in which he'll talk about the product, and they're absolutely silly. It's and, like having to do your own commercial, you know, yeah. it's, it doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> just, and his are. I mean, he one of his sponsors is Borden's and. Um, on the radio, the surviving episode, it's absolutely hilarious, unintentionally hilarious. He he says at one point, "I had this dream last night, and it was a nightmare. I thought I hadn't remembered all the Borden products. Let me see if I can now remember them." Uh-huh. And he names uh-huh. them. So it's <laughs> that's cute. That so, he did it. Right? And Lucas, in the same way, had to advertise her sponsor's products. Look, and, I'm making an omelet on this wonderful caloric range. Right, exactly. Yes, right. Yeah, one of my favorite moments again because it's so silly. She says, "While this is cooking." Let's contemplate something beautiful, like a sunset or the stove I've put this, this dish into. <laughs> so there's, there's a kind of awkwardness at advertising. Child, on the other hand, it's, it's not just because she was on public television, but because she was herself insistent that there be no plugging. She said, I will not allow commercials. I will not mention products. Even though D- WGBH checked with the FCC and found that they had permission to mention names, she said, I don't want to be associated with any particular product. So they would actually tape actually, over. Actually, she held, he, she held true to that up until her death. Um, I mean, she did uh, do a, a bit for McDonald's. But um, I know when I worked at the, food ne- at the TV Food Network, we tried to get her to, to make some claims about things. And she just she she would not flatly refused. She would not yeah, on the show, things. they would actually put a, a tape, duct tape, over the, the, the labels, the labels yeah. including things that you would think, who really cares? Like there's an episode where she holds up a box of salt. And everyone and knows it's, it's Morton's, yeah. right? <laughs> there's one exception. There's a, one of the episodes of, of The French Chef. She mentions a brand of rum by name. And I don't know if it's a slip or she just thought, this is exotic enough, ah, foreign enough ah. that we could get by with it. Well, now, foreign. And you, you just touched on something. I mean, thinking... She here it was another cooking show, but it wasn't just another cooking show. I mean, she was teaching us, us women particularly, but I'm, men liked it too. And there's you know there's there are examples of that. I know when you go in your book, you you do talk about some research of that. Yeah, and she was very proud of the fact that men were watching. Right, but she was teaching a foreign language because she would always give the French term for, you know, the technique or the or the name of the dish. She was teaching a foreign cuisine, and she was also teaching foreign culture. I mean, she was giving us a little taste of what it was to live in Paris, you know, and everyone had these wonderful dreams. And this was at a time when, when um, international travel was just picking up. You know, TWA was just coming on board, and, and we were really starting to fly places. Uh, so let's Talk about that, the advent of the show. She first aired, and the date was? Uh, 1963. 1962. I thought it was two. Was it two is the pilot. Two, the right. pilot aired, yeah, July 1962, right. And then 63, she came on board, right? right? And what do you think, I mean, what do you attribute to the, the success to? I mean, what really set her apart? Well, I think there's several different things. One, you've already alluded I've, to. I've got a laundry yes. list, but you go. Yes. <laughs> I want to hear I mean, yours. I think there's things about her in particular. I think there's what you were just talking about, which is a particular romance that Americans have in the post-war period, but that really starts to intensify in the 60s, a romance for things French. 
And it's not just, and I think you're right, it's foreign culture, but it's not just any foreign culture, it's French culture. And it's, it's, again, going back to what I was saying before about earlier TV cooking shows, one of the ones I just finished writing about in the early 50s, there's a woman named Elena Zelayeta who has a Latin, a Latino, a Latina inflected cooking show in San Francisco and LA. And it, hmm. I'm particularly interested in Elena Zelayeta because she, she had written s- several cookbooks. She had a Mexican restaurant in San Francisco. She goes blind and does her TV show blind. Oh, my goodness. Having known how to work in the kitchen, yeah. um, improvising. with She had, has strings attached to her legs so she knows which camera to turn to. They're pulling the strings. So when they, you know, when they cut from camera one to two, they'll pull on a string and that tells her to look. It's a great show. It's very interesting. But it's not French cooking. It's Spanish or it's mm-hmm. Mexican. In her case, it's Spanish and Mexican. And she talks about the two together. And that's exotic. It's different. But it doesn't have the same kind of cultural cachet. It's not haute cuisine. Spanish, Mexican food are considered heavier, richer, more garlicky. Whereas Child is about giving Americans a possibility of kind of a cultural distinction, social value. And French is very much that. Right. And there are a lot of... Uh a lot of other reasons too, which we, you know, I mean, immigration. You know, all the other countries had a lot of a lot of immigrants from those lands. France, not so many. And and yes, yeah, so France is put, shrouded in a kind of mystery, right? And a mystery that makes us think that there's something special City going of on romance, there. Yes, we we'll yeah. go and, and do something special. And of course, the haute cuisine. I mean, of course, the Italians will always argue with the French about you know who taught whom, but <laughs> but that's another story. That's another show. Um, and is in terms of what really what we could attribute her popularity to. She, I mean, she was so popular. And first of all, just look at her. She doesn't look like anybody else, right? She doesn't talk like anybody else. Ooh, this funny high voice. She's this very tall, huge, kind of, you can say, gawky woman. And and there she is. She puts herself on television. She's not the blonde bimbo. She's not, you know, eye candy for, for nighttime or daytime television. You couldn't help but stare at her. Yeah, I think in the book I try and talk about what's going on in the 60s that also enables Julia Child. And one thing, and I'm not sure exactly how to put it, but I think it, there is an interest in the 60s with people who are eccentric, oddballs. You know, by the end of the 60s, someone like Robert Crumb, uh, Robert Crumb is writing cartoons about right. the fabulous Freak Brothers. Something that will set us apart, set me yeah. apart. Well, how can I set myself apart from the masses? Right. right. And TV is one of the places where you get these eccentric mm-hmm. figures. I talk about the hosts of the 50s and 60s, Soupy Sales, Vampire. Right. By, you know, by the end of the 60s, it's Tiny Tim getting married on TV in the most watched <laughs> episode of TV when he gets married on La- uh, Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson, show. right. You know, and I don't want to say Julia Child is a freak, but there's something strange about her. Exactly. You know, this woman who's too tall, this woman who's too boisterous, this woman who's playing with uh, gender boundaries. I think part of the comedy is that she's doing very physical things often associated with men, wearing a fire hat, coming on the show with a blowtorch, whacking. Whacking, right. You know, the kind of thing that I think then later men ta- try and take back when you get people like Bobby Flay, Emerald, you know, the BAM. Right. BAM is all about women have had the kitchen too long. Let's seize that from them. Although that came from a woman, but we'll talk about that yeah. in another story. <laughs> but she, yes, indeed. And the 60s, and I really wanted to talk about um, several things about the 60s. And and that is, you know, the whole cultural effect of the show. But her popularity certainly was that she was bringing something new. She looked different. Um, and yet her, and she was, well, there was this, 
um, self-effacement that you, you talk about. And she and that in terms of it's okay to fail and it's okay to make mistakes and everything comes out all right in the end or her famous line, but you're all alone in the kitchen. Right. Who's going to see? Yeah, <laughs> like, her, put it back on the plate if it falls off. Judith, Judith Jones, who edited Mastering the Art of French right. Cooking, has in the, I think it's the 25th anniversary volume of the book, talks about several virtues of child as a kind of teacher. And she's, and two in particular that are interesting. She says, one is, for all her comedy, she still is a, good, a teacher. Right. That is, she goes through the steps. She gives the background. And the 60s are also a period where people are interested in learning about other cultures. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book in passing is 1963, when her show takes off, is the exact same moment you get something like James Bond's From Russia With Love, where there's this pedagogical moment. Bond is on the Orient Express, and this man who he thinks is a, a British agent orders Dover Soul and red wine. And instantly Bond oh, says, he's a Russian spy. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, it's a passing moment. It's part of the joke of the film. Yeah. But it's also pedagogical. Yes. It's telling people in the 60s, here's the, what you order with fish. Here's what not to order with fish. And many films are doing that. They're teaching us about French culture. And she's also doing that with her TV show. The other thing that... She, yeah, yeah, no, go on, go on. I was going to say, going back to what you were saying, the other thing that Jones says is a virtue of child is that she will make mistakes. She shows that mistakes are possible. She shows how to sort of soldier on through them, how to solve them, and says, don't be afraid to make mistakes. There's an episode with sauces, uh, Bernays and Hollandaise sauce, where she starts by saying, you will fail when you try this. It's going to take you a couple tries. It's going to take you a couple tries. <laughs> and then there are on-screen failures, usually with success at the end. I mean, it's not that every episode ends in failure. Very rarely do they. Well, you, in fact, you, um, you mentioned in your book that she kind of developed this formulized narrative where the the end actually guarantees the beginning right that th- something does turn out and it turns out maybe it's bumpy a bumpy road along the way and maybe you make some mistakes but right. this is how we're going to proceed and this is how it is but also i mean that was she really i don't know whether she was the first but possibly so and whether it was the producer's idea or hers but to use the beauty shots she would start out Often, let's. I'm thinking particularly of um, the Queen of Sheba cake. I mean, she will start out showing you the finished cake. Right. Okay. Now let's move that aside. Now let's show you how to do it. Um, very early on, that you know, a, a beauty shot would not be call it beauty shot in in the parlance, and it would not be used. You would let's go through the steps, and then it's the money shot. You know, in the end, and not even. But, I mean, a lot of the shows from the 40s and 50s end with the person simply finishing the dish. Sometimes they lift it up and present it to the spectator. But it's still much more about the utilitarian steps and getting something onto the table for your family. For me, even though there are a few cases where you see this kind of money shot or payoff shot earlier, for me, the real innovation of her show is the beginning and end. Mm -hmm. So the beginning will show... What we're going to show. What we're going to (laughs) show if you follow me through this process. That's right. So the payoff is there at the beginning. Right. I think in the book I call it the utopia that's going to be glimpsed. The utopia is glimpsed at the beginning so you know where to go if you... If you're patient enough, yeah. So that really but, established a, a a new genre in the in the area of of cooking shows. Yeah, and then in the ending, the end of the show for me, this was the real innovation, and I talk about it in the book. In the shows before her, as I was saying before, someone finishes in the kitchen, sometimes holds up a, a dish, and maybe presents it to the camera. Very rarely do they taste it themselves. Mm-hmm. In her case, several things happen. The dish is finished. She then takes it out of the kitchen into a dining room. 
It's still a set, and it's but it's next door. And then she starts to eat with you, the spectator. She has her glass of wine. Right, her table is set properly, right? And that seems obvious. You cook something, let's eat it. But before her, there's often this kind of, especially on the part of women, this self-sacrificial, I'm doing it for the yeah. people in my life. Now she's saying, I'm doing it for them, but also, also for, for me. Which was another important part I wanted to bring up about the whole 60s era, because there was, about her show, there was this, I want to say like, rest assuredness, which we talked about. You know, you can make mistakes and it still will come out all right in the end. It was some a soothing predictability. And you mentioned sort of as an antidote to, in the early 60s, there was this anxiety of annihilation. You know, we had bomb shelters. We had, we had bomb drills. Um, and tranquilizers were on an all-time high, <laughs> or on an all-time popularity, as well as alternative religions. But then... And and but then as we move through the sixties, it becomes an era of openness, and she shows. Well, it's it's okay. This is what happened. I made a mistake. It slipped off the plate, but I put it back on. I mean, now is that not transparency? Okay. And then, however, the women's movement really picks up, and Julia was almost the antithesis to the to the women's movement because here she is stuck in the kitchen. But as you mentioned. She does this as much for herself and education and, and learning new things for herself and treating herself to a nice dish, which is, is very important, not doing it just right. Finding for your the own family. pleasures in the, right. in, the, in the decade, going your own direction. Right. And look how much fun I'm having doing it, right. you know, expanding the boundaries. Okay, so I've got to cook dinner, but I'm going to have a good time doing it, right? right? And she does. Yeah, and, and as I say in the book, I think the word that you most, if you statistically analyze the show, probably the word that shows up the most is fun. And this idea yeah. that women are not in the kitchen for drudgery, but for fun, including their own fun, not just the fun of others, right. I think is part of the revolution of her show. You know, I am going to refer to the very end of your book. And the book, again, is called Julia Child's The French Chef. Easy title to remember, right? Um, and I'm, I've got to put my glasses on. Because, oh, where are they? Somewhere here. Um, the French Chef, it's making a cultural argument that is not about cooking alone. Through its forward-moving temporality, its emphasis on the can-do physicality of the strapping figure of action, it concerns its concerns with structure and planning tempered by boisterousness and boisterous investment in the sheer fun of effective performance, its faith that one can change tired conventions of everyday life and get others to share in it. And that was it. I mean, the French chef did it. Um, and she and she continues to do it for a lot of us who continue to watch her on television. Dana, thank you so much well, for you. sharing your time with me. And thank you so much for exploring all the wonderful background of Julia Child's The French Chef. My pleasure. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio. Join us again. following is a public service announcement from Food Karma. To kick off the New York City Meat Week in style, Meat with a Twist will bring together the best chefs and mixologists for a cocktail food pairing party on November 7th from 6 to 10 p.m. at City Winery. 
Meat with a Twist features 10 cocktails paired with 10 chef selections, highlighting local, sustainably grown meats such as duck, lamb, chicken, pork, beef, bison, and ostrich. The party will launch a week's worth of events throughout the city that celebrate the slow food movement bringing sustainable meats to our tables. Again, that's November 7th from 6 to 10 p.m. at City Winery. Updates, tickets, and more information are available at meatweeknyc.com.